You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. There is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity. I pledge that I will serve you with integrity and humility. The most important objective for our country right now is stability. Governments cannot eliminate volatility in markets. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the show. Uh, A headline, Lizzie, that caught my eye this morning about the word of the year, or in this case, the expression of the year, which I have to be honest, I actually hadn't heard, but maybe that's because I'm you you being much younger than I am may perhaps have seen it more on the internet. Uh, Goblin mode which is, I'm told, a slang term describing unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, slovenly or greedy behaviour, which is why we're talking about it on a politics show. Well, it's kind of you, Stephen, to say that I'm much younger than you. I'm not, I'm sure. But (laughs) nor have I heard this phrase at all. Who does it apply to? Well, apparently it was to do with people post-pandemic returning to normal life, people who rejected this idea of going back to, you know, the pre-pandemic lifestyle, being, you know, out in the world, having to present their best selves at all times and the unattainable standards exhibited on social media. More than 300,000 people cast their vote in the poll for this. So three phrases were selected by the Oxford linguists to uh, to put out to the vote. The other choices that came in second and third were metaverse and hashtag I stand with. Um, both of which can probably also be applied to politics. Mm, who do you stand with? Uh, I stood with you for this programme <laughs> until we get to the end of it. Uh, however, speaking of standing with, though, uh, we're looking at more strikes. Still no agreement. The RMT over the weekend rejecting an, uh, an offer from the rail delivery group, uh, meaning that potentially we're all looking at more train disruption before Christmas. Yeah, really bleak that I can't get to the lunches I want to go to. <laughs> but it, it's Priorities, a difficult busy. situation that we were talking about over the weekend. You saw um, Nadim Zahawi out batting out for the government on the Sunday shows. Um, and it seems, it's, how, do, how are we going to get past this stalemate when really the argument that the government's making is that the government's done plenty to help people through the cost of living crisis with the energy support package. So why should it give public sector workers a double digit pay rise. I'm not sure that that argument's sticking at the moment, but I'm sure we'll discuss it more on the programme. Well, of course, they're not the only groups striking as well. We've got, you know, firefighters and members of fire brigades around the UK begin voting on whether to strike over a pay rise offer of 5%. 
plenty more. You've been reporting extensively on this, Lizzie, all of the different various industrial actions happening in December. That's just one of the subject that is the backdrop uh, to the cost of living crisis for working people uh, and the challenges facing the Labour Party. Who do they really stand for now? Leader Keir Starmer has been outlining exactly that in a landmark speech today. His plans for a Labour government include a pledge to abolish the House of Lords and promising a major transfer of power from Parliament to local government. Starmer says he wants to make sure that politics, quote, works again. That requires us to stop pretending that those in Westminster and Whitehall know far better than those with skin in the games in the in the game in the communities in which they live. And so I want to make sure that we push power away from Westminster. So that was Keir Starmer speaking earlier. Other proposals in the Labour plan include banning almost all second jobs for MPs. Well, for more, we're joined in the studio by Bloomberg UK government editor Stuart Biggs, who I'm sure was hanging on to every word from the opposition leader. Stu, it sounds like this is levelling up in a different form, right? It's definitely got uh, a feel of that. It's, I think it's um, a sort of interpretation of what led to the Brexit vote was uh, people around the country feeling... Uh, disenfranchised and and um, you know demanding a sort of transformation, more power in local areas, and different different administrations and parties have come up with slightly different uh, variations on the theme of how to respond to that. I think today we saw how Starmer is trying to uh, tell Brexit voters that he's listened to them despite being. Uh, a Remainer in 2016, and and this is their answer. Well, is that who this speech was aimed at? Because it's a pretty broad-ranging set of, you know, a blueprint, as they're putting it, for government. It, it, it seems a bit lofty, given the current crisis that Britain faces, to be focusing on big-picture issues. Labour at the moment's kind of caught in a bit of a bind in the sense that all the signs are that a general election is still two years away and so even though, you know, all the questions aimed at Starmer were what would you do to uh, solve the cost of living crisis, for example, as it is right now, so a sort of day-to-day political question, when in fact, you know, the likelihood is that if they are going to be in power, it's still, you know, some distance off. And so you're trying to sort of set out what a government, a Labour government would do while not appearing to be sort of too disjointed from the current day-to-day of cut and thrust of politics. And I think that's the the strategic, you know, dilemma that they're in is how much do they engage on what's happening now versus how do they how do they set out what they would plan to do in two years' time? And it seems clever to be making premises, promises to people who feel disenfranchised when you're in a cost-of-living crisis that don't cost much. It doesn't cost anything to abolish the House of Lords. Um, but you mentioned Brexit. Given Labour's poll lead, can't Starmer actually afford to be softer on Brexit? People are increasingly having buyer's remorse. You might infer that Sunak would like to be softer on Brexit from the Sunday Times story saying that they were considering a Swiss-style deal in government. You would think that Sunak would like to be softer if it weren't for the European Research Group, the ERG. Given Starmer's poll lead, why isn't he softer? It, it does appear as though the legacy of what happened in 2019 uh, when when sort of Labour's traditional heartlands 
in the northern England, especially switched to uh, Johnson's promises on on delivering Brexit. It, it feels as though that the impact of that is still having an overhang uh, now. And so even though you've got Labour with this enormous poll lead, you, you'd think gives them some wiggle room. They're still fighting this, uh, you know, fighting this campaign on trying to win those Brexit Brexity seats back, basically. And so and so it's going to be very difficult, I think, for find, Starmer will find it very difficult, I think, to sort of water down his message and his commitment to stick with Brexit. He, he was out again on uh, this morning saying, you know, there's there's no case to rejoin the EU. There's not even a case to rejoin the single market. And so that feels like a line in the sand. Uh, that that he's not willing to go beyond in in order to try to win these seats back. That he, you know, the electoral calculus is pretty clear. He does need to win the seats back in order to get a majority. Mm. The question is, you know, is there actually more wiggle room there than he's than, than he's letting himself see? Does do promises like abolishing the House of Lords? You know, is that really something that's going to lure voters towards Labour? You know, if especially as they're saying it could be you know in the second term of government. There's a there's a question there, uh, you know, to what extent do people look at the House of Lords as a sort of symbol of where things have gone wrong in terms of cronyism and and who's been added to the Lords in recent years is very much a you know the Prime Minister's list of of friends and donors and 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 so the calculation here I think is to sort of to package House of Lords reform as as part of a sort of overall. Um, devolution, decentralization of power, and so you, you know, the pitch, I, I guess, is that um, you know, we, we, Labour is saying we'll transform Westminster, and part and Lords is a package of that. The, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a question mark as to whether people will look at that, and it just feels too distant as a as a policy to to have a direct relevance. And uh, stuffing the Lords also with spads in their 20s, former spads. Uh, but I've also seen a picture this morning of Keir Starmer watching the football with Gordon Brown, who is said to be mentoring Starmer um, in case he soon becomes Prime Minister, as is Tony Blair. I wonder the extent of that mentoring relationship um, to prepare Labour for power. It was it was interesting uh, when Gordon Brown spoke this morning that he... He made a sort of indirect reference to the work that um, started under Tony Blair on devolution and how, uh, you know, it's a sort of unfinished uh, plan to, to, to hand more powers to, you know, Scotland, Wales and, and the regions of England. And so to have Starmer and, and Brown on the same stage this morning, there's, there's very clearly a sort of message that it's... Uh, He's not trying. Starmer is certainly not trying to distance himself uh, from the elected, lab, the last le- elected Labour government. Uh, the opposite, in fact, he's trying to sort of present it as a, as a continuation to try and sort of reawaken, um, you know, the last time Labour was in power. That's totally different to what Corb- Jeremy Corbyn uh, was trying to do. Mm. Um, Could that work against Starmer that he's align- aligning himself with that era? They've they've clearly looked at uh, the numbers. I think you know Labour is now a different um, party than it was under Corbyn. I think Starmer has uh, really sort of uh, changed the focus, 
arguably much more centrist now than it was under Corbyn. Corbyn is, isn't even a, doesn't even have the Labour whip anymore. And I think Starmer said this morning there's no chance that he's going to get it back or there's no, there's no likelihood that he's going to get it back. So it's a, it's a very different party now uh, than it was in, in the Corbyn era. It's actually, uh, you hear the groans in the, on the benches at Prime Minister's Questions whenever there's a reference to the member from Islington North. Um, and we're also seeing lots of strikes this month, Stu. You were talking about Starmer being in the centre ground. How does he play this? Does it continue to be a problem for him for the rest of the month? It's, it's clearly a very tricky problem. And I think that's why Sunak, uh, Rishi Sunak in Parliament that there's almost no prime minister's questions that goes by where uh, the Conservatives or Sunak specifically doesn't try and hang the strike issue on uh, Starmer and the Labour mm. Party. So far, uh, arguably, I think there's a you know opinion polls suggest that uh, it isn't hurting uh, right. Starmer so far, and he is treading this kind of fine line. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This week kicks off with a dire warning on the UK economy from the Confederation of British Industry. The group estimates that Britain has already fallen into a recession that will leave business investment 9% below 2019 levels and productivity levels 2% below the pre-pandemic trend by the end of 2024. For more, we're joined by Bloomberg senior UK economics reporter Philip Aldrich. Phil, how does the CBI's forecast compare to those of the Bank of England and the Office for Budget Responsibility? Is it bleaker? And the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development also forecasting recession for us. Yeah, it's 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 not as bad as those three, um, but it is. So we now have four forecasts of a recession in the last sort of three or four weeks uh, that have come out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's peaked to trough 0.7 percent fall. Uh, it's relatively short lived. We get back um, uh, sort of in 2024. We're back to um, uh, levels. You know, of today, t- today's levels just before the recession starts, and then um, 
uh, and you get a, and you get a proper recovery in 2024, as opposed to the OECD, which is basically seeing um, no recovery at all, and the Bank of England, which has got this uh, long recession and then just kind of extraordinarily slow recovery. So, um, and the reason why they're they're a bit more optimistic is because they don't think that interest rates will stay as high, go as high, and stay so high for so long. That's that's the main difference. Philip, what does the CBI want? from the government in this? Because they're they're announcing this forecast, but they're also calling for action. Yeah, they're really concerned that there is no plan for growth uh, that the government uh, has. And, and what they would really like is um, some effective uh, tax relief on investment. Uh, there is a relatively small tax relief on investment at the moment, which is up to a million pounds worth of investment. Um, and uh, what uh, corporation tax with corporation tax going up to 25% in April from 19% currently, uh, they are looking for a uh, what they would like is full expensing, which is complete uh, tax deductibility for um, in, you know, all uh, machinery and capital I- investment, uh, which would be which would be huge. And to be honest, in, in, in the EU, no country other than Estonia has such a regime. So they know they're probably asking for too much, but they are asking for a very large investment tax relief, which which they think will boost the amount of investment in the economy, which will actually lead to stronger growth permanently by as much as a quarter of a percentage point, you know, um, in perpetuity, because one of the biggest problems we face in this country is a lack of business investment. So the CBI is calling for the government to focus more on growth. I was at the CBI's annual conference in Birmingham the other week and Keir Starmer's speech focused on growth. It sounds more, it sounds like Starmer is more aligned with the CBI than Sunak. And I wonder how serious a political problem it is for the Conservatives that the CBI is calling on them as the party of business to do more. Yeah, well, I mean, Tony Dankers, who's, who's head of the CBI, he was, he's, he, he says the template that he likes to look at is actually Rishi Sunak's lecture, his, in May, the May's lecture of in February uh, this year, which was the same day that the war in Ukraine broke out. So it kind of got swamped by events since. But um, uh, in that Rishi Sunak does talk about investment, innovation, and ca- capital, people, and skills. He talks about and uh, and and the business community would like to see him enact that. What the CBI picked up, what you know, Danker and others picked up at the CBI conference was that Rishi Sunak believes that the one million pound investment allowance is enough, um, and they are absolutely adamant that it, it is not enough. And if we don't have reform of uh, you know those tax, those investment tax rules. If we don't uh, boost uh, spending on uh, apprenticeships and, and skills, if we don't have some improvement in uh, in sort of the flexibility of uh, migrant labour, uh, some degree of uh, improvement in flexibility. Um, obviously, Brexit uh, shut that down uh, considerably. If we don't have a number of these these things. We will have what um, Danker has said is would be, will be a lost decade effectively because our our growth capacity will be so weak that we're not we're just we're going to struggle on. We'll look a little bit like Japan did, obviously, famously for you know, after the 1990s. We, you, mentioned, you mentioned it, so I'll, I'll ask about it. Brexit, what, sh- surely that also would be something the CBI would like to see a shift in, in how the UK government has been handling that. Yeah, so uh, the um, so Danke did, did say that you know, Swiss... Uh, talk of a, uh, a Swiss deal is loose talk, uh, in, his, in his words. Um, uh, he... He would like to see you know, the business community definitely want to see movement on uh, better 
conditions for labour flexibility across mm-hmm. Europe uh, to bring in. You know, there are uh, workers. Sh- there are shortages in particular industries um, where they definitely want to see uh, relaxation of the rules. Um, and th- those kind of measures will just ease the immediate pressures. Um, uh, but it, they he, they didn't go so far as to say you know we need to. You know, have a Swiss Swiss deal. We don't need to rejoin the European Union. We don't need to be part of the single market. They're not. They're not advocating that. So there's there's they're sort of bumping up. Their ideas are bumping up against political realities. When I was talking to Tony Danker at the CBI conference, he said we don't want a Swiss style deal. We want a Boris style deal. Just implement the one we've got. Mm. And he said that. Uh, closer ties with Europe wouldn't be a silver bullet on the labour market. So I thought that was interesting from, yeah. as a business community leader. But how does the CBI propose that Sunak fixes the Northern Ireland Protocol? Because this is the thing that he's very clear about that they need to get uh, done. Yeah, so that, I mean, that, that was um, a very interesting part of it. Where he, so if you fix the Northern Ireland Protocol, his thinking, and clearly picking up from what the business leaders are saying, is that you remove a lot of the political tension. And once you've removed the political tension between uh, you know, Brussels and, and London, uh, then you can uh, start to build on the existing trade agreement, improve, improve it in um, areas where, for example, uh, recognition of standards. So, you know, uh, architects, um, I don't know if this is specifically accurate, but, you know, if you're a, if you're professional a, so, qualifications yeah, in professional general, qualifications. recognition across borders, you know, the, the idea that if you're qualified in the UK, you're able to work somewhere else and vice versa. Exactly. If someone comes from Europe, they'll be able to come here. Again, referring back to the kind of labour market shortages. And I, I think the other part of this to remember as well is that the, the progress in the Northern Ireland Protocol from the European side would be a precondition to any sort of improved relations down the line as well. And it's sort of all, all within the goal that there would be fewer administrative they were able to lessen the administrative burden for companies operating even between Britain and Northern Ireland exactly so the progress that he would like to see on the uh, you know on on the brexit terms uh, of trade is you remove the political tensions and then you can actually move, make progress make move forward on these other areas and so it was it, you know this isn't this isn't a huge trans transformation in ambition it is as you say it's the boris deal actually being delivered and then just deepening those trade trade links which you would expect to happen after the trade deal is signed anyway i mean you mentioned the may's lecture um Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, even referred to the May's lecture in his fiscal statement. <laughs> um, and but and and then I should say Rishi Sunak's speech at the CBI was very much focused on innovation. So what's changed? The CBI seems to be saying that Sunak's all talk, no action. Is is that it? Yeah, the, I, the what's what's changed actually goes back to the budget fiscal statement. It's it's there's no money left at the moment. Um, I think um, I think the CBI recognise that right now, as uh, you know, as as Danke was saying, right now everything is about macro stability. Everything should be about post that sort of mess up under under uh, Truss and Quateng, re-establish um, economic stability, and then you know by March we need we need to have some proper growth ideas. So that will be the budget in you know, in in early March probably, um, and that's when he would like to see um, you know some proper policies which we, which businesses can can believe in. I mean, he did come up with they did they do forecast a recession but they they do they are actually saying that we you know we believe that the but businesses do feel 
like they have the capacity to invest. They are ready to start putting money in, uh, it, it, you know, into the UK effectively. But um, they don't want to do that until they know whether there is going to be this political stability, whether there is going to be a plan for growth, whether you know whether they're investing in a in a country which is going to just be in the midst of a lost decade, or whether we're going to be in a country where there, where there is the prospect of some expansion. Well, on the the labour market issue, something else that you've been writing about is this idea of inactivity in the labour force. Something that's you know an aspect of. Uh, the, the tightness of the labour market and you've been digging into some of the ONS data around this um, and, and long COVID is a huge factor. Yeah, so uh, there's, a, there's some stats out from uh, uh, from the ONS about um, what some of the causes are for uh, this increase in inactivity. So we have 300,000, roughly 300,000 fewer people in work than we did at the start of the pandemic, which if you had just extrapolated on pre-existing trends, we would have, we ought to have about, we're about a million people short. Um, Long COVID might account for about 200,000 of that. The ONS analysis suggests that there are um, the number of people who are inactive. um, There are 200,000 of those additional inactive people who are also um, self-reporting long COVID status. Not now, they may not. They may have become inactive for other reasons as well. So they're, they're, it's a it's a bit of a muddled picture. But the fact is, it does there does seem to be a link between long COVID and obviously this. There's this whole issue about you know the where health where the health of the nation interacts with the with the labour market because you know we uh, we've got you know, backlogs in the NHS, five five million um, treatment backlogs, um, and 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 if people can't feel well enough to work, then th- th- then they won't be able to. To, to go into work and we we've lost effectively lost about 600,000 people uh from the workforce um just just mm-hmm. through this gro- growth in inactivity which is largely due to il- um long-term illness. Philip Aldrich Bloomberg's senior UK economics reporter thanks so much for being with us in the studio. I should say Stephen Phil's been reporting on the long covid labor market inactivity issue for months and it's really just beginning to gain traction in the papers. Well yeah I and mean, it's fascinating to see the the detail coming now from a, the for those official statistics as well, kind of adding to uh, to that story as well. Um, Lizzie, do you have your Christmas tree lights up yet? Uh, I don't have my tree up yet because I'm told reliably, apparently by my husband, that the spines, spikes, whatever they're called, will fall off by Christmas Day if we go too early. I think that's fair, especially, I mean, unless your home is freezing. I would imagine that could be somewhat, somewhat of a difficulty. Well, the Common Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, will be lighting the Parliament Christmas tree lights uh, at half five this evening. That's one of the events we're watching out for. There's some action in the uh, House of Commons and in the House of Lords. Two new Tory peers are being introduced. The economist, Avisa Moyo, and the former barrister, Kate Lampard, uh, are joining the House of Lords today. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.